On Wednesday, June 21st, the Washington Post hosted the second of a multi-part Addiction in America live interview series, which convenes policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts to examine the country's opioid crisis. In this segment, An Epidemic in America, Cause and Effect, health and medicine reporter Lenny Bernstein interviews Baltimore City Health Commissioner Lena Wynn and Dr. Andrew Kolodny, co-director of the Opioid Policy Research Center at Brandeis University. The panel discussed new approaches for doctors and prescription providers to prevent, treat, and break patterns of addiction across the country. Let's listen. Morning. Thanks very much for coming. Um, I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm a health and medicine reporter here at The Post. And uh, joining me on stage uh, to talk about this public health crisis uh, from a medical perspective and how doctors and healthcare providers are responding to the opioid epidemic in America we have Dr. Andrew Kolodny. He is the co-director of opioid research at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Dr. Lena Wen, uh, she's the chief medical officer and health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. Um, more fortunately for us, <clears throat> these are two of the most uh, far-sighted thinkers uh, on this subject. They have been talking about this for many years. Dr. Kolodny was sounding the alarms about uh, irresponsible uh, opioid prescribing before most of us were listening. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wen has taken steps in Baltimore that uh, many cities uh, have yet to take in, in combating this crisis. So um, it, we're very fortunate to have them here. Um, Andrew, it, it seems that when we throw the full weight of our public health uh, resources at other uh, epidemics, HIV, drunk driving, uh, car accidents, that we much more quickly were able to bend the curve on fatalities. Here we are 17 years into the opioid crisis. Uh, if the latest data is correct, the numbers are just continuing to escalate and escalate rather sharply. What's different here? Why haven't we, why haven't we been able to, do th to solve this? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think one of the main reasons that we have failed to respond appropriately to the opioid crisis is that it was misframed and, and intentionally so. Uh, so you know, certainly by 2000, 2001, there were reports coming from Appalachia, New England about Oxycontin overdoses and, and addiction. And um, it was clear we were having a problem with opioids. Uh, from the beginning of the crisis, the way the issue was framed, particularly by pain organizations that were getting funding from opioid manufacturers, the way the issue was framed for policymakers was as if all of the bad things that we're hearing about, uh, all of the opioid harms policymakers were told were limited to so-called drug abusers and that millions of patients were being helped by the increase in, in prescribing. And so policymakers were told that you know, your challenge is uh, to try and do something about this drug abuse problem without making the chronic pain problem worse. Millions of Americans are suffering from chronic pain. And if you were to promote any kind of intervention that would result in reduced prescribing, you'll be punishing the pain patients for the bad behavior of the drug abusers. So you've got to balance these two competing problems. And the reality is that we don't have these two distinct 
groups. And opioids are not safe and effective treatments for the vast majority of people suffering with chronic pain. Millions of patients with pain have become opioid addicted. Thousands of patients have lost their lives. And so the opioid crisis is not an issue of drug abuse. It's not an abuse crisis. If you frame it that way, it suggests that the problem is people behaving badly, taking dangerous drugs because it feels good, and they're accidentally killing themselves, and that maybe the intervention is to, to make the pills hard to crush so people can't uh, abuse them. It's not an abuse crisis. It's an addiction epidemic. The reason we have historically high levels of overdose deaths, the reason we're seeing heroin and fentanyl flood into non-urban areas, the reason we're seeing a soaring increase in infants born opioid dependent, children winding up in the foster care system, outbreaks of injection-related infectious diseases is because we've had this very sharp increase in the prevalence, the number of Americans suffering from opioid addiction. And if we're going to bring the epidemic under control, we have to stop creating new cases of addiction through more cautious prescribing. And we have to see that the millions who are addicted have access to effective treatment. But, but Andrew, just very briefly, um, you and I have both spoken to dozens and dozens of people, uh, many of them older folks, who swear they couldn't get through the day without their opioids. It might be a small dose. They may never have increased that dosage over the years. But they say, look, I'm, I'm in this wheelchair if I, if I don't have opioids. Well, there are about 10 to 12 million Americans who've been put on long-term opioids. And certainly when you write a story about uh, opioids, um, you'll sometimes see in the comments section people writing in saying, you know, uh, I'm not an addict and you're punishing me or calling me an addict and I shouldn't lose access. And um, you've got many of these people who may truly believe the opioids are helping them. But if they're on daily long-term opioids, they're probably not being helped. What they may experience as relief when they take an opioid is probably relief of withdrawal pain rather than relief of mm. an underlying pain problem. If you're taking opioids every day round the clock, like an extended release opioid, Oxycontin, you take it in the morning and, and at night, and if you're doing that for, for months and years, it's unlikely that you're still getting uh, pain relief from the drug. If you're on opioids chronically, in order to get pain relief, you'll need higher and higher doses. And as the doses get higher, we see that people's functioning begins to decline. And we know that opioids can even make pain worse. It's a phenomenon called hyperalgesia. I wouldn't say that we should never give opioids to people with chronic pain, but the way in which they might be effective for people who suffer from chronic pain is if they're used intermittently okay. on a really bad day. Round-the-clock opioids are not helping the, these patients. And you know, millions of Americans are now stuck on opioids. I think we should really be thinking of that population as victims of our era of aggressive prescribing. We need a compassionate response for those folks. We don't want their primary care docs to just fire them. Um, for some of those patients, we'd probably see them turn to heroin if they can't get opioids understood, anywhere. Understood. Lena, the, the truth is that we know what works in the battle against opioid addiction. The science is there. Mm -hmm. The policy is there. Could you tell us what works and why we still have an epidemic if we know those things? That's right. And this is why all of our discussions today are so frustrating. 
there are a lot of diseases out there for which we don't have a cure, we don't have a treatment, we don't have prevention, and we really struggle with those and we need more research. And yes, we need more research when it comes to opioids as well, but we actually know what works. And to your question earlier, Lenny, about why has this been so different from any other public health crisis, there's one word, stigma. There are myths and misconceptions around the disease of addiction that's very different from other illnesses. I hear, for example, in, in Baltimore, you had mentioned that we, we've been putting out our antidote medication, Narcan or Naloxone. I wrote a blanket prescription for this medication to every single one of our 620,000 residents because everyone should be able to save a life. And yet I hear people all the time say, well, why give this medication to people? Isn't that just going to make them use more drugs? Would you ever say to someone who is dying from a peanut allergy, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna give you an EpiPen because it might make you eat more peanuts next time. Right, we don't hear that. Naloxone works, it's effect, it's immediately life-saving, it's non-addictive, it's safe, and we have to save someone's life today to get them into treatment tomorrow. So that's one thing that, 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 that works, and yet we don't have nearly enough of it because of stigma. There's also huge stigma around treatment. We don't say to someone with diabetes, well, why are you still on insulin? Why can't you get off of your insulin and isn't lifestyle changes, shouldn't that be enough? And yet we make those assumptions about people with the disease of addiction all the time. And we, in regard to Suboxone and, and Methadone. That's right, we, when actually the science is clear that medication-assisted treatment with Methadone, Buprenorphine, combined with psychosocial counseling, are what works for the treatment of addiction. And for so long, we have treated addiction as a moral failing, as a crime. I go back to um, I, uh, what I think are Senator Markey's excellent points about a whole generation of people who we have to apologize to. In Baltimore City, I've had our residents at community forums come up to me and say, I don't understand why suddenly the opioid epidemic is a public health crisis. Why is it an emergency when it's been a state of emergency my entire life? <laughs> because it was poor minorities in inner cities who had this illness, and therefore it was seen as a choice and a moral failing. Therefore, if you end up in jail or dead, it's your fault. I'm glad that we're now seeing it as a disease, but then we need to treat it as any other disease and devote the resources that are necessary to fight it. And very quickly, um, how many people, uh, what percentage of the people who need it get treatment? The Surgeon General support said that it's about one in 10 people. One in 10 people with the disease of addiction are able to get the help that they need. Now, what other disease would we find that to be acceptable, right? Would we find it acceptable if only one in 10 people with cancer can get chemotherapy? Okay. Um, one of the things that has changed in the last few years is that prescription opioids, uh, the, the rate of overdose and addiction from those is going up much more slowly, but we have this explosive uh, fentanyl slash heroin crisis. Does that change the, uh, the, the, the epidemic for us, and, and, and what do we do about that? So I, I think it's important to understand the, the trends and to interpret the data appropriately. Uh, what we've seen over the past couple of years has been a leveling off and even maybe a slight decline in overdose deaths involving prescription opioids. But starting in 2011, we've seen a soaring increase in uh, overdose deaths in heroin, uh, in involving heroin. 
And I think that many are misinterpreting, misinterpreting that data. What they're thinking is that, well, we've seen this leveling in, in prescription opioids while heroin has gone up. So that means that the drug users are all switching from the pills to, to heroin and that the painkiller problem has turned into a, a heroin problem. That's not really correct. It's half correct in that the vast majority of people who've started using heroin post-1995 were first addicted to prescription opioids. So the switching part is correct. But the switching didn't begin in 2011. From the beginning of the prescription opioid crisis, young people who were becoming opioid addicted were switching to heroin. A young person who becomes opioid addicted through use of prescription opioids, and the use begins, you, the, the addiction begins from either recreational use or medical use or sometimes a combination, brief medical exposure followed by recreational use. The young people who are becoming opioid addicted, once addicted, they have a hard time maintaining their supply of visiting doctors. And it isn't that doctors and dentists don't like to give young people lots of pills. Unfortunately, we're too comfortable doing that. But doctors don't like to give healthy-looking 25-year-olds a large quantity on a monthly basis. So young people who are becoming opioid addicted to maintain their supply. And once addicted, you have to maintain your supply. You're not using because it's fun. You're using because you have to keep using to avoid feeling awful. Once addicted and they have to maintain their supply, they wind up on the black market. The pills are very expensive on the black market. If they were in a region of the country where heroin was available, they switched because it's cheaper. And what's happened steadily, not starting in 2011, but steadily from the beginning of the prescription opioid crisis, is we've seen heroin flood into more regions of the country where it wasn't previously available to meet the demand for it by these young people who are opioid addicted. What starts happening in 2011 is that the heroin supply becomes more dangerous. Increasingly, it has fentanyl in it, or increasingly, it's fentanyl being sold as heroin. So we've seen this sharp increase in deaths among young heroin users, but not a sudden switching. But what's also very important to understand with regard to the prescription opioid overdoses is that we really have two populations that have become opioid addicted over the past 20 years. The younger group that I just described but an older group as well, people in their 40s up through their 80s. The older group is developing their opioid addiction almost entirely through medical treatment. The older group, when they become addicted, is generally not turning to the black market. Um, when they become addicted, they generally don't have a hard time finding doctors who will maintain them on a large quantity of opioids on a monthly basis. And up until pretty recently, we were seeing far more overdose deaths in the older group that gets pills more easily from doctors than we were seeing in the younger group that's been switching to, to heroin. Fentanyl is now causing that younger group to catch up. But in 2015, the last year for which we have the national data, it was about equal in terms of the number of prescription opioid overdoses to, to the heroin overdoses. I think next year we will see the younger heroin, more deaths in the younger heroin using group because okay. of fentanyl. Okay, hang on to that thought because I want to get back to it. Baltimore has had a heroin problem for decades. That's right. Um, what are you seeing out there? It's getting worse. So we have had the crack, the crack epidemic, heroin epidemic. We also have prescription pills. That's a big issue in our city as well. And also fentanyl. I mean, we're hearing about fentanyl a lot today, but fentanyl is many times stronger than heroin. And it's now being mixed in with heroin. And people who are using it don't know it. And so if they're using what they think is their usual amount, 
and now there's fentanyl in it, they're overdosing and they're dying. The number of people in our city overdosing from fentanyl has increased by 35 times in the last three years. Not 35 percent, 35 times in the last three years. It is a, no doubt, it's a public health emergency, but you know, as with all public health emergencies, it's complicated, and there are at least two components. There's a supply issue, and there's a, uh, there's a demand issue. We heard about the supply issue and the, the need for, for law enforcement. Sure, that's one issue, but then we're, con we're going to continue to have a problem unless we can address demand, unless we can get people who have addictions into treatment, whether they're addicted to heroin or prescription pills, they need treatment. And unless we can address that, we're still going to see this crisis escalate. And now, because of how deadly this drug is, it's only going to get worse. So what we've done in the city is, first, we've gotten Narcan or Naloxone into the hands of every individual as much as we can. Um, in the last two years, actually, we've gotten this, uh, this drug not only into the hands of first responders like paramedics and police officers, we've gotten into the hands of everyday people. And everyday people have saved the lives of over 950 of their fellow residents in the last two years. 950. Now, we do have a problem where we're now being priced out of the ability to save lives. We simply don't have the money to purchase enough Narcan. So that's a problem. Is that why Baltimore <laughs> is running low on Narcan? Because you're simply running out of money to buy it? That's correct. The, if we don't have a shortage of Narcan in the sense that there's plenty of this medication out there, but we don't have enough resources to be able to purchase it for everyone who needs it. So we've had to ration this life-saving medication. And then we've it, also it, been trying to increase treatment, but we also don't have enough resources to do so. Is that because some people need four, five, six shots of Narcan, uh, Be you know, when they take fentanyl? Because it's, there are multiple reasons. One is that fentanyl is such a strong drug that you do need multiple doses of, of Narcan. But the other reason is we have reduced the regulatory barriers so that everyone can carry it. Well, now everyone wants to carry it. People are calling the health department every day saying, I'm a, I'm a faith leader. I mean, I run a neighborhood association. People are overdosing outside my door every day. I want to have this medication here. We don't have nearly enough to supply everyone in our city who can save a life to be able to do so. Um, I want to get back to a point you made, but um, maybe I'll start with Lean on this one, though. You're both physicians. Um, I thought back in 2015, towards the end of the year, uh, when the CDC put out the guidelines for physicians, and then that was soon followed by work by the AMA, one of the more conservative physicians organizations. They started to get the message out to doctors. Uh, you know, you don't need to give 30 pills when someone has a tooth pulled. You don't need to prescribe 60 when someone has a very minor surgical procedure. Uh, it seems to be universally agreed that physicians are going to have to step up in some regard and take responsibility for this epidemic. Are they? Are, are they? are they changing their? Are they changing their philosophies? Because everybody in this room has a friend who went home with a bottle of Vicodin, 30 or 40 for for a procedure that really didn't call for it. From my standpoint, the medical profession is changing, but slowly, but in the right direction. So when I was going through medical training, I didn't really learn about how addictive opioids were. We had big pharma around all the time, really misleading people about how important it is to address pain. And yes, it's important to address pain, but becoming pain-free actually shouldn't be our goal. If you fall down and you sprain your ankle or you bruise your knee, 
I don't know that you need to take opioids to take away that pain. Maybe living with the pain is okay, but you know, we didn't really learn about that. And now we are, we are learning about it, but, but physicians too are very frustrated because we went into medicine to take away people's suffering. We don't have a lot of tools when it comes to pain control. We're not really taught about physical therapy. We're not really taught about alternatives to opioids. That's something that we have to work on. The guidelines are helpful, and physicians, at least in my city, are beginning to use the guidelines and, and hold on to these guidelines to, um, to do better by their patients. But I would say one more thing, which is that we continue to be frustrated every day in our practice. So I'm an emergency physician, and in the ER, I have patients coming in who know that they need treatment. They will tell me they need treatment. Every nurse, every social worker, every physician that sees them know that they need treatment. They may even have overdosed multiple times and now they're seeking treatment. But I tell them, I'm sorry, the next available treatment slot is in three weeks or two months. Again, what other disease would we find out to be acceptable? Do we ever say to someone, sorry, you've had a heart attack. If you're not dead in, two, in, in three months, come back and maybe we can get you to, to, to see someone then. Is that so, an insurance reimbursement issue? It's a capacity issue. It's a reimbursement issue. It's also something that will only be worsened if we are to repeal the, the, the ACA, but a whole different story. <laughs> in any case, there's a lot more that, 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 that needs to be done, but we physicians should be seen as partners in this process we should push physicians, but, but physicians are trying to do the right thing as well. Andrew, are doctors getting the message? Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, so the um, increase in opioid prescribing that would ultimately lead to this epidemic, it, it starts in 1996. From 1996 till around 2012, opioid prescribing was, was still increasing. The medical community was responding to a multifaceted campaign that misinformed us. Uh, led us to believe that the risk of addiction was very low and the compassionate way to treat just about any complaint of pain was with an opioid prescription. So the prescribing starts going up in 96. Since 2012, it's plateaued and come down a little bit, but it really hasn't come down very far. We are still massively over-prescribing opioids in the United States. You know, we want doctors to be able to weigh risks versus benefits better when prescribing opioids, but they're not doing that very well, and I, I think one of the problems has really been the Food and Drug Administration. I think that unfortunately, uh, the Food and Drug Administration is not properly enforcing the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Had it been properly enforcing that law back in 96 when OxyContin hit the market, the FDA would have told Purdue, great, you have extended release oxycodone, you can market that drug for use in hospices, you can send your sales reps to the palliative care doctors, to, to the hospices, but we're not gonna let you promote OxyContin for back pain. We're not gonna let you, let you do this in, in uh, primary care and, and family practice because the risks of using opioids for back pain outweigh the benefits. And so if they had properly enforced the law, they would have done that, and I don't think we'd have an epidemic today. By 2001, 2002, it was very clear the prescribing had taken off at a rate far beyond what could be clinically needed. FDA is beginning to hear from members of Congress whose constituents are overdosing. They're holding meetings and they're saying, you know, should we be changing the way in which we allow these drugs to be marketed? Should, be, should we be changing the way in which we're approving these uh, drugs? 
And they asked that at a meeting in 2002, and unfortunately, the, the experts they called in to advise them were the same docs who were leading the campaign to increase prescribing, and, and FDA decided not to make any changes, and in fact, they went in the opposite direction. Other pharmaceutical companies saw how well this was working for Purdue. They wanted their extended release opioids on the market as well, and FDA actually made it easier for new opioids to hit the market. So despite the fact that we had a clear problem, we've seen a steady stream of new opioid approvals. Each time a new opioid hits the market, the company that brings that opioid to market has to recoup the investment, a considerable investment. The way they do that is with a campaign to increase prescribing. So at a time when the CDC and health officials across the country are urging the medical community to prescribe more cautiously, you've got new products hitting the market with campaigns to increase prescribing. Didn't they just ask um, uh, one company to take an opioid off the market? Uh, yes. Because it's, so, so, it's being so widely abused? Yes, yeah, so end, uh, the FDA just asked Endo Pharmaceuticals to remove uh, Opana uh, from the market, and hopefully this could signal that FDA is beginning to change its, its opioid policies. It's, it's unclear whether or not that uh, decision was based on a change at FDA or might have, have had something to do with sort of a battle between FDA and Endo over whether or not Opana should have been labeled abuse deterrent. Um, it's hard to say. There is quite a bit FDA could do, and if they start taking the proper steps, it would be very helpful. Okay, we have about five minutes, so um, just going to give you each about half of that. Um, you're the drug czar, and I don't mean ONDCP. I mean, you've got all the power in the world to change this epidemic. Uh, Lena, what would you do? What's your list of policies? Sounds amazing. Um, first of all, I have to get used to this. So, um, first, I would ensure that there is treatment on demand. Not treatment in three months, but treatment at the time that people need and the right treatment. You know, we shouldn't be telling people, well, there's only one thing available. You get methadone or you get counseling. But we should give people the, med or the medication, the counseling, the services that they need. So first of all, ensuring treatment on demand. Second, I would support those on the front lines with the resources that they need. We in Baltimore City, we work very closely with law enforcement, city attorney's office, with our nonprofit partners. We know what we need in the city. We have made requests of our state and federal partners, and you know, as long as we are able to get the resources, we know what works best in our community. So support those on the front lines with getting the treatment that we need. The third is, I would change the culture, something that might take a little bit longer, but we need to change the culture by asking the difficult questions, including why is it that we have this mentality of a pill for every pain? Right? How can we change prescribing practices, advertising practices, approval, but also the culture, the mentality that patients have too, that we all have for a pill for every pain? And we need to ask the question too, what pain is it that we're treating? Because we're not just treating physical pain, we're also treating deep trauma, um, deep disparities, mental health issues that may need to be addressed in another way. So there needs to be a systemic and holistic approach that can only come from us asking the hard questions and taking the difficult approach. When we see that this is a solvable problem, we know what works, we just need the resources to get there. Okay, and that was less than two and a half minutes, so I'm gonna ask you guys a really quick question, yes or no, before Andrew gives us his list. Safe injection sites. Uh, they're against the federal law right now, but uh, yay or nay? 
here I in the United States? I would do it. Would you if, tell people what a safe injection site is? Sure. Safe injection site is a facility where people can come in and be monitored while they are using drugs. So they'll have a nurse who, uh, who can take their blood pressure, their oxygen saturation, and, and et cetera, while they're while they're using drugs. This is a harm reduction approach. Similar, it's an extension of needle exchange, which we've had in Baltimore for over 20 years. And there's one in Vancouver. It has never is, lost anyone to an overdose. That's right. And there, are, there is evidence saying that it is one approach to be taken to reduce the number of overdose deaths. Since there is evidence for it, and because it is a harm reduction public health approach, it's something that we would explore in Baltimore City if it were legal, because we don't really want to go to jail and um, don't want all of our federal funding to be pulled um, in order for us to do this. So that's a yay. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll answer the safe injection and then... And then uh, tell us okay. how you would... Uh, so um, I don't know that it will really help or hurt. Uh, so where it makes sense to have uh, safe injection facilities is where you have um, in, in urban areas where there are homeless or uh, people who are injecting drugs and they can go in and, and inject someplace where they can be monitored. Like Baltimore. Um, yeah, but it, our opioid addiction epidemic is disproportionately suburban and rural. And you know, we just saw a, a big fight in Ithaca, New York over whether or not there should be a safe in, injection uh, facility there. In um, suburban or rural areas, I think it's very unlikely people are going to commute into town to inject in a, a facility. I think if they built it, nobody would, would come. And you have many areas where there are waiting lists for addiction treatment, waiting lists to get buprenorphine, which can effectively treat opioid addiction and save lives. And you've got these debates over whether or not to have a, a safe injection facility. So I think it's a bit of a red herring. I think there are interventions that would be much more effective. Okay, you're the drugs are for 82 seconds. So, so yeah. tell us what you're going to do. So um, there are many different policies, and uh, I heard an economist talk about the problem recently, and he said there's no magic bullet. We need magic buckshot. So what I'll, I'll just mention in my few seconds is um, the big picture strategies for controlling the problem. Uh, this is an addiction epidemic. Um, and the way that we respond to this disease epidemic is similar to the way you respond to other disease epidemics. You have to prevent people from getting the disease, and you have to see that the people who are suffering from the disease have access to effective treatment. We, to prevent opioid addiction, that really boils down to much more cautious prescribing so that we don't directly addict patients or indirectly cause addiction by stocking everybody's home with a highly addictive drug. There's quite a bit that can be done on a state level and a federal level to produce more uh, cautious prescribing. And for the millions who are addicted, you have to see that they have access to effective treatment. And when I say effective treatment, I'm not talking about counseling or rehabs or detoxes or even the Vivitrol injection, which I think is really only appropriate for a small subset of people who are opioid addicted. I'm talking about buprenorphine treatment and methadone maintenance. We have to see that it's much easier to access buprenorphine than it is to access pills, heroin, or fentanyl, or we're not going to be able to reduce overdose deaths. And then just one other point, mm -hmm. um, the, we're failing when it, in, in every aspect of responding to this problem, but we also, if we're going to respond appropriately, we need better surveillance of the problem. We need to know how many Americans have opioid addiction. There was a report yesterday in the Washington Post that over a million Americans have received a hospital treatment for, for opioid addiction, yet the national estimate of the number of people who are opioid addicted is 2.5 million. A total underestimate, it's 
certainly well over 5 million that are addicted. We need to be able to measure the incidence, an estimate of the number of new cases of opioid addiction occurring each year so that we'll know whether or not our efforts to prevent opioid addiction are working. So we need much better public health surveillance of this problem. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. That's about all the time we have. Dr. Lena Wen, Dr. Andrew Kolodny, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to speaking with you more in the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.